Why would a pharmaceutical startup focus on AI early in their business journey? Marlene Tanner explains it to us today. She is a senior HR and organisational development executive in the pharmaceutical space and a Genos certified practitioner. She implemented an AI program that transformed behaviours and enhanced patient-centric vision at the pharma startup she worked for. She shares how this was rolled out and the impact it had after just 18 months. Welcome to Emotional Intelligence at Work, brought to you by Genos International. Hello again, Ben. Hi, how are you, Marie? It's great to be with you. I'm good, I'm good. And hello, Marlene. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you on the on the podcast. Thanks, Marlene. Let's start at the very beginning. You ran a successful AI program for your pharmaceutical company that you were working for at the time, and it was still a very new company. Can you tell us the context of the business and why you felt AI was so important at the time? Well, thanks, Marie. The business had newly formed from its parent and was trying to establish a unique and and a separate identity. And central to this was the establishment of a very patient-centric vision. And with that, some new ways of working and leadership attributes to really support this new vision. And the behaviours were at the centre of all what was considered critical performance and talent processes. And the talent philosophy by which the company's approach was to really look at how it developed its people and how we could embed those behaviours within it. And after the initial training on these behaviours, it really became apparent that to really help leaders at the time bring out the best in themselves and in those around them, they really needed a set of skills and a language per se that would really help them embed these new behaviours. But also importantly, they needed some frameworks, some frameworks that they could fall back on to really help role model these new ways of working. And so for me, that's where the Genos model was really a a natural fit. The ways of working easily mapped to these Genos competencies. And this was important if we were going to launch a leadership development program on, on the back of this. And was there something that triggered the need or was it just a vision that you had for for the leaders of the organisation? It was quite organic and we already had a training program that we got from Global at the time and we're rolling that out from a behavioural perspective. But you could see that the how to go about this new way of working still needed some support and guidance and that's where the competency framework that the Genos model provided really helped turbocharge what we were trying to do when we were rolling out the training on all of these behaviours. That's what I love about this is that I often talk to our clients about emotional intelligence being the vehicle, being something that will help you achieve your ends as opposed to the end in itself. I think it's one of those things that gives emotional intelligence purpose, if you like. You want to improve leadership, it's a vehicle for leadership. If you want to improve sales, it's a vehicle for that. It's a framework, it's a language, it's a a set of know-how, if you like, that helps you turn up in ways in which an organisation is asking you to in some ways. And what I liked about the actual competencies is that they were still pitched in everyday language. 
they weren't something that was difficult to understand. So even the labels of authenticity, self-awareness, awareness of others, self-management, they're all areas that we know and we can already resonate with. But what was really, um, I guess, underpinning all of that was the, the attributes that supported those. And once again, that language was every day. So you could actually use that in your discussion in terms of the, the workshops, but also when you were doing one-on-one -on -one coaching. I think that's good advice for people out there who are looking at the concept of emotional intelligence. Is it accessible? When you look at it, does it resonate? Um, can you instantly see the connection between the model, the behaviours of it and what you're trying to achieve? Because again, you should be thinking about AI like Marlene's positioning with it now as a vehicle to achieve something. So who participated in it and what was their response to it? Well, Marie, one of the most critical parts about any new program is that you actually have very senior leadership support and sponsorship of it. So without that, it's really hard to implement. So what, what we did is that we actually had the senior exec team go through the same but truncated version of the program and then also regularly review the participation rates of the first line and second line leaders that were going through that program. So the curriculum was initially set up as a foundational management skill development, and that was not at EI at this stage. And then after we cemented some foundational management skills, we overlaid the EI leadership program and all managers, regardless of their level, were expected to attend. And how did they find it? In terms of participation rates, obviously very high because they were asked to do it. But we found when we looked at the feedback forms, there was a 90% satisfaction in terms of the program itself, the content, but also importantly, the applicability back into the workplace. Because as you, as you heard at the start, it was the frameworks that we utilised as part of the program that people could fall back on and utilise afterwards. So what exactly did the program entail at this very early stage anyway? Okay, so when we launched the EI component of the Leadership Development Program, it was a three-part series which focused on how EI showed up in the workplace, how you can specifically utilise EI to lead change, but also importantly, how you can manage yourself through, through difficult times, and we call that resilience. And this was way before the pandemic, and the focus was really on how executives who were really in a 24-7 type mindset, how they could learn to switch off and really bring in some very proactive strategies to support their own self-management and from there be able to support their teams as well. And so how many people went through that? So at the time we had between 80 to 90, almost 100 people going through. Wow. And from a practical sense, how many days in total did the program run, run for? And did it run over a certain period of time? Everyone had the opportunity to complete the program over an 18 month period. So when you're talking about time commitment, all up it was about five days. When you looked at the management part of it, the foundational program, and also the, the EI component, which laid over the top of it. And for those leaders that wanted to know more after they'd been through the EI program, we really encouraged them to take the 360 EI assessment. 
allowed them to um, really review their own, I guess, self against those competencies, invite their peers to comment, also their manager, and also anyone else within the workplace as well. And it was very much positioned as a developmental opportunity. And that's really important to do because this is not about performance management. This is about really supporting a, a new leader or an existing leader's capability to grow and develop and to really find their own sense of leadership through that. And I was one of the coaches also that did the debriefing and um, I found that they really uh, accepted the, the coaching in the way it was intended. Um, and, and how I set that up was really asking them to segment the feedback in four quadrants, to really think about what they were hearing is, what was it expected, what they were hearing in terms of the feedback? Were they surprised by what they heard? Could they have been a little bit unclear about the feedback? And what draft actions may they need to take as well? Because of that very four simple framework that we used to actually help them digest the feedback, it was very empowering. They really could see the feedback as a gift rather than seeing it as a threat, which some could have done if um, we didn't give them that, that really strong guidance. If I could just jump in there, I think one of the things Marlene's talking about there is using something that we call the, the Jahari window methodology. And it's just a way of allowing people to locate where they're at in terms of their experience, if you like, of their results. Actually, this is really clear. It's in my to use Jahari window parlance, it's in my open area. This is something I know about myself that others also know about me. Or it's in my blind spot. You know, I got a surprise because this is not something I was expecting uh, or it's not part of my, my own self-concept, if you like. Or it's in the hidden area, so to speak, of the Jahari window. So it's a methodology where you sort of say, if you like, here are the common experiences that you might have with your results so that people, you know, don't feel like they're an odd duck out or whatever, they can actually resonate and locate themselves in the common experiences that you have with feedback. And it's those little things, isn't it, Marlene, that really polish up a program and make a difference to them, minimising um, people feeling attacked through their feedback, maximising their opportunities from it and so on. I, was, I think the other thing that was a lot in that program, Marlene, was, you know, the real science of behaviour change, getting, you know, cascading from the top down. I mean, that's about getting the senior management group across the concept telling the organisation, we've been through this, um, this is how it's benefiting us. I mean, all those sorts of things really are very, very important for real behavioural change. One of the things that I enjoy hearing about people who've experienced EI development and assessment is the benefit that they get personally. And so my next question is two-pronged. I never claimed to be Oprah, okay? So just bear with me as I get the question out. <laughs> but what do you think were the results from an individual point of view, you must have had some really great feedback about how some people felt personally about applying these new skills, not just at work, but in life at general. And then my second question is, what then was the impact or the results you saw on an organisational level? So it takes me back to the time that we were running the resilience-based workshops. And there was a particular slide that we were using which actually showed the balance, the delicate balance between too much work and not enough work and getting that sweet spot, that Goldilocks point around having the right load of work 
And there was a lady in, in the class that all of a sudden just sat back and realised how she was missing the point, not only in work, but at home, and how she was trying to do too much and splitting her attention in way too many ways and not having the focus that she needed. And I've never seen anyone just sort of go through such a period of realisation in such a, a short amount of time, really. And she just stopped and realised that she needed to make a change there and then for herself. She was just trying to take on too much and not being effective as a mum, as a worker, as a sister or as a partner. And it's those sorts of aha moments that you see through these sorts of programs that you realise that you're doing much more than just simply lifting the capability of, of a leader. You're actually helping them move away from that sort of like surviving to a more thriving phase of their life. I've seen that happen uh, a few times myself, even with little activities we do. One of them is called the 24-hour emotions exercise. We just get people to reflect back on the last 24 hours and we give them 60 seconds to try and recall as many feelings they can recall feeling over the last 24 hours and people just write them down on a list, Marie. And, uh, of course, at the end of it, we get them to add up how many feelings we've got and then we get them to think about how many unpleasant feelings they've had and how many pleasant feelings they've had over the last 24 hours. It was surprising to me the first time I did that activity. I think it's surprising to a lot of people, Marlene, you would have seen it yourself, that even just that simple exercise of reflecting on a 24-hour period, how it raises people's awareness of, oh, look at my ratio of unpleasant to pleasant feelings. And it gets really people to think about their world, their day, and what they've been experiencing. And of course, then decoupling that with a bit of the science of emotions, you know, unpleasant feelings tend to narrow and limit the way you think, behave and perform. Pleasant emotions tend to broaden and build. Think about what you're like at work when you're in your best mood. What do you like to be around? I think all these sorts of things that are used around a simple activity like that help bring about sometimes the realisation that Marlene's just given us uh, in her example there in the workshop. It's activities like that that uh, can really be not only a cathartic conversation but a real um, awakening for some people. You know, when you're so stressed, sometimes you don't realise what's been going on until a little exercise like that gets you in a more contemplative and reflective mode. So what then is the impact on a on an organisation such as the pharmaceutical company you were working with, Marlene, what results did you guys see? Well, there's a real knock-on effect because when you change any aspect of an organisation, and in this situation we're talking about workplace behaviours, it really can um, impact the way you experience the culture within the organisation and also the way you experience the process and the systems but also it can really have an impact on creativity and innovation. And that's actually a really key driver of success with business today, being able to ensure that we don't shut off that part of our mind and that we're open to, to, to possibilities wherever they come from. And so this particular organisation that I was working with were absolute thought leaders in innovation and year on year we're continuing to to build their muscle in this area and continuing to have breakthrough innovational strategies at a small level and at a large level and the leadership around this actually was a a, a stimulant for this sort of environment diversity of thought is a to me is a key outcome of emotionally intelligent leadership 
And there's a lot of science behind that too. The science behind innovation is pleasant feelings on average tend to broaden and build the way we think. We see more opportunities, we, see, we think more laterally and, and more creatively. So if you want an innovative culture, you've got to have the ratio and the balance of emotions tipped in the pleasant emotions direction. Having said that, we're not trying to create utopian workplaces, are we, Marlene? This is not about, you know, um, kumbaya. This is not about sitting around and being nice to each other. In fact, sometimes there can be nothing worse than an overly nice corporate culture where people don't lean into conflict and don't speak up. But what we are talking about when we're talking about innovation is saying sometimes we learn a lot from the toughest situations we've been in in life mm. and sometimes we learn a lot when we're feeling really good. What the science suggests is you need a mixture of all that but on average you want to be experiencing more pleasant kind of emotions, particularly for that lateral creative thinking. I did read somewhere once that if you want someone to use half their brain at work, put them under stress. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. And there's a lot of truth to the to the notion that, you know, sometimes we learn the hard way. Sometimes, you know, lots of hardship bring about some of the most innovative, creative kind of solutions. And so um, we shouldn't we shouldn't discount that uh, either. Marlene, did you have measures in place before you embarked on this program? Did you and your team sit down and go, okay, well, this this is what we're working towards and this is how we're going to measure what success is? What was that measure? We always wanted to be considered a great place to work. And so year on year since the inception of the, the company back in about 2013, that was a core goal underpinned by a strong patient-centric focus as well as a, a highly innovative uh, company as well. And so that was the pinnacle, uh, achieving year-on-year -year improvement in great place to work. And as you can appreciate, not one thing does it. it it's a combination of things. But that it was clear a clear uh, focus of, of the organisation. So to do that, you needed to look at the leadership capability, you needed to look at the structure, you needed to look at um, the impact of creating a mentally healthy workplace, all of those really important factors together really helped this organisation reach the number two position within the great place to work. And so that was a, a core goal, not specifically of this program, but in general of what the executive team were looking for because we know that once you are moving in this direction, you're creating, as I mentioned, cultures that thrive, but in essence, a place where people wanna come. They wanna come and work. Even in a situation where you can't physically go there, you're still feeling so connected to the values and that sense that the, the organization is wrapping its arms around you and caring for you. And I just wanted to bring up that point then about this um, potential concern about a nice culture. Um, one of the things when you actually dig into the data around um, the EI aspect, we were starting to see some of that. And that when you rolled up all of the EI assessment data, there were some uh, gaps around being courageous in the way people gave feedback and were asking for feedback. And so this is the area where you, we, the company still needed to work and, and is continuing to work and specifically are looking at bespoke programs to help address that because it's not about being nice, 
It's about actually being uh, an organisation where you feel that you can bring your whole self to work and be authentic in your conversations, which is a core um, pillar of emotional intelligence. Absolutely. And I, and I think there's a couple of lessons in what you've said there, Marlene, that are really valuable to reflect on and, and think about if you're thinking about bringing emotional intelligence into an organisation. Firstly, that just an EI development program in and of itself is great, but it doesn't necessarily create the bang for buck that you might be looking at. You need to also, you know, align other organisational development components to it, like mental health and well-being, flexible work, diversity, inclusion. When you wrap those things together with emotional intelligence, you achieve really great outcomes. It reminds me of our very first consulting assignment with ANZ Bank, which was about cultural change as opposed to just behavioural change. And that wasn't just a program that was based around emotional intelligence. It was changes to the look and feel of offices. It was getting boardroom tables out and putting bean bags in, in some of those, not all of those rooms. In other words, it was a, a really big, broad um, initiative that both involved the systems and processes of the bank together with the learning and development. So that, that I think is the first lesson in what you're talking about there, Marlene. The second thing I hear in it, which I think is also just as valuable is sometimes an EI development program can cause unintended outcomes. And one of the unintended outcomes here, I think you're pointing to a little bit, is the culture may have became overly nice. When we delved into the data a little bit deeper there, what we found was that people who were quite high on EI weren't necessarily being the ones who were being overly nice. They weren't applying necessarily the concepts, I think, in that way. Um, it was more those we were lifting up that were still stuck a bit in that area of the journey and perhaps even still are if you looked at those who are scoring really high questions like you know encourages others to express themselves expresses their own selves effectively they were scoring high on those items where there's some who were still coming up weren't but yes i think it's a good lesson that an ei development program is a little bit like um the more you study it, the more you realise you're just at the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of depth to it and you can you can keep going with it year on year and often have to to, to pivot into other areas uh, of, of an organisation that are important, like leaning into conflict, calling each other out, recognising the culture might be overly nice and, and then doing something about it. Well, off the back of that, Ben, you roll out this program for your leadership team and managers, about 100 of them, and that goes for 18 months. Then what? That is a very good question. Thank you. Um, so thinking about what actually happened, uh, at the time we'd kind of come to the end of that program, the company was approaching some major business challenges and was looking for ways to further improve their agility and speed of problem solving. And as the organisation grew in this capability, it became apparent that the next evolution of this was in areas such as growth mindset. And the reason being was to really help solve these bigger organisational challenges. And many of the principles of neuroscience that under, underpin the way we show up in an emotionally intelligent way were utilised to support the evolution of this growth mindset capability and specifically examining our triggers. So our triggers and in the way our language uh, influences how we perceive challenges and problems was really at the heart of what we were trying to do. So the simple act of reframing our fixed mindset statements into growth mindset statements allowed our teams and in fact whole functions to see new possibilities 
to the way they actually solve problems and organisational challenges. And as a result, it just really helped unlock a lot more creativity and more options for people to find better solutions. Yeah, so some fixed mindset statements. You might find yourself saying these uh, more often than you'd like to admit, things like, oh, we can't do that, oh, that won't work. No, I don't think we've got the capability to do that. And then fixed, uh, moving those into growth set mindsets or what might be possible, what parts of this could we do, what capabilities could we bring in to help us achieve that, was making those kind of shifts. And I think once you've got a foundation of emotional intelligence, they're the next higher order kind of conversations that you can, that you can really start to have, where you can start to have that self-awareness of when you're saying those words that are indicative of a fixed mindset instead of a growth mindset or if you're crazy brave and you should be after a good ei development program marie you know saying to your colleague i'm finding your words to be those of a fixed mindset how would we be thinking about this or what words and phrases would we be saying if we we're in a growth mindset mm. and one of the most powerful words ben to use is yet so speaking the word yet, I can't see how to do this yet. Yeah. Putting the word yet after it really helps remove the full stop and make it into a more open sentence. And it's something that uh, we found very helpful to help reframe people's language. And it's almost like um, there was one there was one particular sort of like slide we'd always use. It was straight out of a, a kindergarten class where all of these kindergartens had put up these little phrases that they can't read very well, that they have trouble tying their shoelaces, that things aren't working so well with their writing. And then the that was all in white paper with black writing. And then the growth mindset words were phrases were which really helped reframe that and get them seeing it quite differently. And that was one of the most powerful slides to help people realise the power of language and the power of yet in helping them realise the possibilities that they weren't yet seeing. Well, speaking of kindergartners, I hear the words not yet a lot at <laughs> home. My way of dealing with it is to just say, go to your room, which I will work on, obviously. Uh, over time. While we're in lockdown, I will work on that. So Marlene, that next phase, so it was 18 months and then it sounds like the program just continued to develop over time. I mean, how, how long had it been? You're no longer at the company, but at the point that you left, how long had you guys been rolling out EI programs across the company? Oh, a good three years in terms of how it evolved. So it started off as that three-part series, as I mentioned, moved into the growth mindset and the final mm -hmm of this, uh, which was in lockdown last year, was when we really evolved into a virtual learning situation. And each of those competencies were really looked at from a leadership perspective. So for example, if we were talking about the self-aware leader, that's really looking at, you know, how you show up in terms of your individual uh, strengths and how you might adapt. The awareness of others was the empathetic leader and really a really strong part about that was uncovering your biases and really digging in to find out what was getting in the way of you demonstrating your empathy. And the third one in the series that we had at the time was really called the resilient leader and it was really digging into some of these triggers. What was triggering you yeah. to be in these less productive states? 
So it really asked people to, to dig deep. And all of those were two-hour workshops. So that's that's the evolution from the, that big face growth mindset and then into these virtual short, sharp, bite-sized workshops. Are you general certified yourself? I am. And you ran, you developed these and ran them for your company at the time? In partnership with Genos. So we worked together uh-huh. and these virtual sessions were facilitated by the partners with, within Genos. But what we had, we had the opportunity to make some of them very bespoke so they were contextualised to our own company. So you can have it either way. You could have got an off-the-shelf product, which is perfectly okay. Because of the maturity of our audience, we wanted to customise and make them really tailored to the situation. And also because, you know, we wanted to cater to some of the mental health issues and the context that we were working at so that we really um, spoke to the, the people that were there rather than that generic sort of approach that you can also take but didn't work as well for us during, during lockdown. Great. Thank you so much, Marlene, for sharing that story with us. That's a pleasure, Marie. Thanks, Marlene. It's been great to have you on the show. Marie, as always, thank you. 